Thank you. God sometimes calls selected people to fill important leadership roles. And the Bible tells us that God calls everyone to be saved. And it's his desire that no one would perish. So God calls everyone to come to Christ. But sometimes God has a critical assignment that he needs to fill by a special calling. When God needed a carpenter to build an ark to save a remnant of his people, he called Noah. When he needed a father to actually begin a distinctive race through whom the Messiah would come, he called Abraham. When he needed an administrator to lead Egypt through a famine so that those descendants of Abraham would be saved, they would survive, he called Joseph. When he needed a bold deliverer to maintain uh, justice to lead the Israelites from slavery, he called Moses. And when he needed a godly king to rule Israel, he called David. When he needed a beauty queen who could use her influence to spare the Jews when threatened with extinction, he called Esther. When he needed a virgin to give birth to the Messiah, he called Mary. And when he needed an ambassador to the Gentiles, he called the Apostle Paul. And I believe that God calls people to a variety of significant leadership roles today. Yes, some politicians, although most of them we have no idea what direction they're going in, but God calls some of them. He, he calls judges, he calls teachers, coaches, writers, musicians, CEOs of companies. And maybe some of you here today should listen to God's call to ministry or to go into mission work. The Bible teaches us to make certain that we are worthy of the calling that we've received. So we're going to open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 3 this morning. And we've been looking at this book this summer. And what we're doing is looking at the way Samuel grew as a leader. And this chapter records in a dramatic way how this devoted boy named Samuel actually was called to a difficult task by God. And as we study it, be thinking of how you can fulfill God's will in your life as well. And the first thing we learn is that God sometimes calls people at a very young age. So verse 1 of 1 Samuel 3. The boy Samuel served the Lord under Eli. In those days, the Lord did not speak directly to people very often. There were very few visions. So in those days, that refers to the period of time between when Joshua conquered the promised land and the Israelites came back into Israel, between then and when Saul was anointed king of Israel. So this was a period of 300 years, and the country was ruled by judges during this time. But you would hear that messages from God were very rare, there are actually only five recorded revelations from God during that time. And we wonder, okay, what's the reason? Why did he speak so infrequently? And Maybe it was because the nation was in spiritual rebellion. Maybe it was because it didn't have strong leadership. Because a couple of times in the book of Judges we read, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did as he saw fit. So basically, everyone did their own thing. 
In those days, the Lord did not speak directly to his people very often, but God's about to intervene. Now, last week we learned that when Hannah brought her son Samuel to the temple in Shiloh, he was referred to as a child who had just been weaned. But now he's no longer a child, but a boy of 12 years of age, and he is serving there in the temple, and he had grown up in the temple. Now, most spiritual leaders today have actually grown up in the church. It's not true of all, but there are still some great spiritual leaders who were converted later in life. But most spiritual leaders grew up in homes where their mother and their father basically guided them from birth in the church. Our associate pastor James, his father was a pastor at one time and then in later years became an elder. Like Bruce Stewart and Jeremy Boner, two of our elders, Jeremy and his family just moved to Calgary, but they grew up in elders' homes. My father was a deacon. Peter Boyer is the only one in our leadership group that grew up a heathen and didn't become a Christian until he was an adult. But most pastors, and he's not here today, you'll have to tell him to listen to the tape. But there are, so most pastors and elders grew up in the church and experienced God's call early on. So there are advantages to that, and then there are disadvantages as well. But I want you to know that the positives far outweigh the negatives. And one of the advantages of growing up in a Christian home is the fact that you grow up with the knowledge of God's Word. The scriptures that you memorize in Sunday school or in church camp or in youth group, they stay with you your whole life. One of the earliest verses that I memorized was Psalm 119, verse 11. And you're going to wonder, what language is this? But thy word have I hid in mine heart, that I might not sin against thee. So that kind of sticks with you. That's the King James translation. Another advantage is that you're spared some, and I was trying to come up with the right word, so I used nastier sins. So the book of Jude says that God is able to keep you from falling. And many of you, by growing up in the church, you, you weren't, someone who overdosed on drugs, you never got arrested for drunk driving, never fathered a child out of wedlock, or contracted some sexually transmitted disease. Now, you weren't perfect, but you were kept from falling hard. And you don't have as many spiritual scars as others might have. Another advantage of growing up in the church is that you feel comfortable in that spiritual surrounding. Like people that didn't grow up in a church, they're kind of hesitant about coming into a church because they don't know what's going to happen. They don't know if they're going to be called to stand up and introduce themselves or pointed out. They're just not certain. They don't, but those who grew up in the church, like it doesn't intimidate them to even walk into a church that's not their own. They're quite comfortable. It's familiar territory. And when the person speaking says, open your Bibles to 1 Samuel, they know where that's at. They, so they feel at ease. Another advantage is that if you grow up in the church, your chances of becoming a Christian are greatly increased. I have a quote here from George Barna. And he wrote in one of his books, social scientists have known for years that the moral foundations of children are generally determined by the time they reach age nine. 
So that's most of the kids that are downstairs right now. That program goes up to age 12. So if you grew up in the church, there's a much greater chance that you'll accept Christ than others. But now, if you grew up in the church, you need to be aware of some of the possible disadvantages of that experience. And you might think, how can there be a disadvantage of growing up in the church? Well, one of them is over-familiarity. God's Word is deeply rooted in your heart, but you can become too familiar with the sacred. Now, the priest that Samuel was serving was Eli, and his sons had become so accustomed to ministering in the temple that the holy had lost its mystique for them, and they stole from the offering, and they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the temple. And like, if you grew up in the church, maybe you were an altar boy, you might have been a preacher's kid, a junior choir member, you might have played in the baptistry like my kids did. Like, we used to have a five by ten foot tank back here that was four feet deep. And I was just putting a little extra hot water in it before I baptized somebody, and I forgot to turn it off. So the tank was this far from overflowing when I stopped it. And my daughters, you know, seven, nine, something like that at the time, they saw that, they immediately went home, got their bathing suits on, and we're swimming in the baptistry. But... And it might be sneaking some of the leftover communion. Maybe one of your family members looks after that. Or it could even be using the Bible, clowning around with some of the wording in it. But you get so familiar with Jesus that this is all just kind of old hat to you and you have no fear of God at all. Another disadvantage of growing up in the church is that you can feel cheated. Like I know some people that grew up in the church and they were spared some of these nastier sins of the flesh, but then they look at other people involved in that type of thing, and they're wondering, you know, like, did I miss out on something? Like, and they'll say, if I wasn't a Christian, I'd go out and I'd really live it up. But you can tell that they think that those who are wasting their lives in riotous living are actually having more fun than they are. And then some who grow up in the Lord actually are uncomfortable around non-Christians. It's almost like we develop a subculture where you can have this unrealistic, unrealistic view of the world and conditions you to be ill at ease with a non-Christian. And since most of your social life is centered around the church, it becomes an us versus them kind of mentality, and it makes evangelism difficult. So rather than loving people as Jesus wants us to, we end up regarding them as opponents and becoming isolated from them. And there's one other disadvantage of growing up in the church, and that's the fact that if we aren't careful, we can develop a legalistic mindset. An adult who became a Christian as an adult, like they have an amazing time of embracing grace and, and loving Christ. They understand that they don't earn their salvation by doing good things. And they're grateful for the cross of Christ. But some people grow up in a semi-legalistic church, and it, it, it's almost like there's this set of rules that they have to obey. That, that's what a relationship with Christ is all about. Remember the sinful woman that was brought before Jesus, and she was so grateful 
for the forgiveness that she had received, that he had forgiven this horrible past of hers, that she unashamedly washed his feet with the tears from her eyes, and then she wiped his feet with her hair. And when one of the Pharisees or the religious leaders of the Jews objected to her emotional display, Jesus said, she loves much because she has been forgiven much. Timothy accompanied Paul on many of his journeys, and he grew up in a Christian home, yet Paul had to keep reminding him to fan into flame the gift that was given to you. Like, don't be timid about your faith. Samuel grew up in the temple and made that experience a tremendous advantage because he had such a heart for God. Now, God sometimes calls us in dramatic ways. So we're picking up in verse 2. Eli's eyes were so weak, he was almost blind. And one neat night, he was lying in bed. And Samuel was also in bed in the Lord's house where the Ark of the Agreement was. So that's the Ark of the Covenant. And this shows how familiar he was with the sacred. He's sleeping in the same room as the Ark of the Covenant, which the Israelites carried with them in the wilderness. God's lamp was still burning. Then the Lord called Samuel, and Samuel answered, I am here. He ran to Eli and said, I am here. You called me. But Eli said, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. So Samuel went back to bed, and the Lord called again, Samuel. Samuel again went to Eli and said, I am here. You called me. And again Eli said, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. This is like my daughter and our grandson, Seth. He keeps, every hour he keeps coming in. But Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the Lord had not spoken directly to him yet. So Samuel knew about God. He was ministering in God's temple, but he hadn't yet had an actual relationship or experience with him. Like for years, I knew about Billy Graham and his son Franklin. I read some of their stuff. I watched things on TV, but I never actually met them until Franklin came here in 2004 to do a weekend crusade. And the pastors in the area got together to do some planning with the Billy Graham Evangelism Association, and they wanted us to come up with some unique name. And, and I was actually the one that came up with the name. They said, it needs to be something that talks about the whole area. So the East Coast Festival with Franklin Graham was what it was. So I got to meet Franklin there, and now we're, we're best buds. We're texting. Actually, we're not. But at least I shook his hand, and I met him. And I can say that I have now met Franklin Graham. So Samuel was about to meet God personally. So we're back in verse 8. The Lord called Samuel for the third time. Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, I am here. You called me. Then Eli realized the Lord was calling the boy. So he told Samuel, go to bed. And if he calls you again, say, speak, Lord. I, your servant, am listening. So Samuel went and lay down in bed. So you know that his heart was pumping. His ears were perked up. And I was going to show you how wide open his eyes probably were. I tested it on my wife at breakfast, and my eyes don't open. My forehead just goes up. But, so his uh, eyes are wide open. And then the Lord came and stood there and called as he had before, Samuel, Samuel. 
And you can just imagine when Samuel heard that voice, like the hair on his arms stood up. And then Samuel said, Speak, Lord. I am your servant, and I am listening. Now, most of the time, God's call doesn't come that dramatically. God did call Moses in the midst of a burning bush, but then he called David just in a simple anointing ceremony at his own home. He called Mary dramatically through an angel, but he called Esther through the winning of a beauty contest. And God still calls some people in exceptional ways, but he calls most of us in ordinary ways. So don't demand an instantaneous voice that you can hear, but because God often speaks in a still, small voice over time. Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Ken Norris was the president of Maritime Christian College in Charlottetown from 1960 to 1980. So during the 70s were my teen years, and he came to visit our church on occasion. And we didn't have much leadership for youth in my church, so I was actually teaching my own, not adult, but my own teenager Sunday school class. And then I would read scripture and I would pray during the worship service. And Mr. Norris would come up to me and he would say things like, oh, you'll make a fine preacher one day. And, and he kept encouraging me. And, and then I, I just kind of ran from it. And I decided, I'm going to go to Mount Allison University. They're offering me a scholarship to come and play football. And I went there, and things didn't go so well. And then I didn't make the hockey team, which was my best sport anyway. And I somehow thought, I'm going to become a chartered accountant. That's what I was studying. And that's not me, like to be off by myself in a room. James is away this week, so I thought, I've got the office to myself. I'm going to be able to get a lot of work done. But there's nobody to talk to. Like, it's too quiet in there. So that following summer, I went back to work at Marco Polo Land, a campground in Cavendish, not having a clue what I was going to do in September. And towards the end of the summer, I was a part of a select group of people that we just did some odd jobs around the campground, things like cutting down trees and splitting wood, preparing firewood for the next summer at the camp season. And you young guys, girls get uh, kind of impressed by lumberjack stuff because they were bringing me lunch in the woods and everything. It, It was amazing. But then one day was kind of slow, so the owner sent us 16 kilometers away to paint his mother's house. And I'm up a 36-foot ladder at the back of the house, and I noticed Mr. Norris driving in, and you could see Maritime Christian College on the van. I thought, oh, no. And so I just kind of hid at the top of the ladder, and, and I could hear the guys starting to make some snide remarks. Oh, Nicholson, going to go to Bible college. And, and then one uh, man spoke up, and he said, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And then I could hear the voice, I'm here to see Gregory Nicholson. So, but there was just something when that man, his name was Kenneth McDowell, when he said, I don't think there's anything wrong with Gregory going to Bible college. I just kind of came down off that ladder and went over and shook hands with Mr. Norris. Like, it's just the, a whole culmination of things that led up to that. And two weeks later, I was enrolled, and that's 41 years ago. And I'm thinking, if I hadn't responded to that, I would miss out on meeting all of you that are here today and all the ones that are away for the weekend. 
But God still calls people. Like there was no audible voice, but I had this feeling at that moment that was different. I knew that I had made a godly decision. And people will sometimes say, well, if God doesn't call me dramatically, like how can I know He's calling me? Let's just look at Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek His will in all you do, and He will show you which path to take. So God promises that if we walk in obedience and we trust Him, then He will make the way clear for us. He's not going to play games with us. He's not going to give us a little hint and then get upset with us later that we never caught on to what He wanted us to do and we messed up our lives. But He called Samuel four times before Samuel knew what was going on. So if we don't understand it at first, God will find a way to make His will clear. Years ago, I read about a single young woman whose lifelong dream was to go into mission work in China. And she had, was the oldest of seven children. She had made her way through university. She had rounded up support to go on that mission. She was actually at the dock about to get on a ship to head overseas when she received a telegram. So that tells you how far back this is. And she, the telegram said that her mother had fallen sick and she had died. So she was brokenhearted, she was grief-stricken, and she returned home for the funeral. And then she realized, like, Dad can't look after all my younger siblings by himself. So she stayed home. She tried not to be bitter and to accept God's will, but it was hard. And she spent a good portion of her life raising her siblings. And she never married, and she never got to go to China. And it seemed to her for a while that her life was wasted. But two of her brothers became very effective pastors. Two sisters became godly missionaries. And one of them even actually went to China. So in later years, she understood that God had called her to be a second mother. He used her life and multiplied her influence in ways she'd never imagined. And she didn't realize it until she neared the end of her life. And she found God's call by being faithful to the task that he had given to her. If you have a submissive, patient spirit and say with Samuel, speak, Lord, I am listening, he will make his calling known. Philippians 1 says, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So here's a third lesson. God sometimes calls us to a difficult task. And listen to what God told Samuel in verses 11 to 14. The Lord told Samuel, Watch, I am going to do something in Israel that will shock those who hear about it. At that time, I will do to Eli and his family everything I promised from beginning to end. I told Eli I would punish his family always because he knew his sons were evil. They acted without honor, but he did not stop them. So I swore to Eli's family... Your guilt will never be removed by sacrifice or offering. So God gave the young boy Samuel a very difficult message. And no one wants to tell a beloved mentor that your kids are horrible and that you know there's no hope here because you didn't correct them. You're finished. It's difficult for a doctor to deliver bad news, even when there's hope for a cure. 
but it's even harder to deliver bad news when there is no hope. Some of the prophets in the Old Testament, they they had a mixed message. There was conditional bad news. If you guys repent, then you won't perish. But Samuel receives this pronouncement against the house of Eli that was certain bad news. Like, it's over. God's patience has run out. No prayers or sacrifices will help. So then 15. Samuel lay down until morning. And then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli about the vision. But Eli called to him, Samuel, my son. And Samuel answered, I'm here. Eli asked, what did the Lord say to you? Don't hide it from me. May God punish you terribly if you hide from me anything he said to you. So Samuel told Eli everything and did not hide anything from him. And then Eli said, he is the Lord. Let him do what he thinks is best. So Samuel dreaded telling that aging priest what God had said. But although God's words were tough to repeat, he delivered the message exactly as God had given it to him. And he set a precedent by which he would always deliver the message that God had given to him. And as a result of that, that established God's rule in that country. See, we've been commissioned by Christ to go into our world and share the gospel And it's referred to as the good news because there is a cure for our sin problem. But there are some parts of the gospel that aren't pleasant to share. It's not nice to say we don't want, excuse me, we're all sinners, we're destined for hell, and there's only one way that we can be saved, and that's through Christ. When we say those things, it offends some ears, and Some people have been conditioned to only hear political correct thoughts and they get angry at us and they say that we're intolerant and that we're exclusive when we say that the one way to be saved is through Christ. Rabbi Zacharias, he said that man's problem isn't that there is only one way to be saved, it's that it's God's way, not our way. If there were two ways to be saved, we'd be upset that there weren't three. If there were ten ways, we'd ask, why not eleven? So it's a constant temptation to kind of soften the message and just say what people want to hear. So we can say, God loves you just as you are. Jesus died to save us all. That's true, and it doesn't offend anyone. But when you add, but he doesn't want us to stay the same way that we are, then we get a different reaction. If the letter carrier is putting mail in your mailbox and he notices an envelope and on it it says, last warning, if this bill is not paid, your electricity will be disconnected. He knows that you don't want to receive that notice, but he also knows that it's his job to deliver the mail efficiently so that you can take appropriate action. The Bible tells us that we've been entrusted with the grace of God, and it's not our task to alter the message so that it pleases other people, but to deliver the message as it has been entrusted to us. There's a passage in Ezekiel 3 that really sobers me. When I say to the wicked, you will surely die, you must warn them so they may live. 
If you don't speak out to warn the wicked to stop their evil ways, they will die in their sin. But I will hold you responsible for their death. If you warn the wicked and they do not turn from their wickedness or their evil ways, they will die because of their sin. But you will have saved your life. So we warn people of judgment, not just for their benefit, but for ours. See, the good news is that there is hope through Jesus Christ. There is a cure. God has made a way of salvation for those who put their trust in Jesus' death on the cross to save them. God promises that if we proclaim his word boldly and truly, he will honor it. And he says that your words won't return empty. Now, I've preached sermons from the Bible where I felt, oh, I really blew it today. Like Nobody was listening to that. But invariably, somebody comes up to me and they will say, you will never know how I was blessed by your message this past Sunday. I go, huh? Like, like You'll never know. That, that's right, I'll never know. But somehow they were. So God promises that if we are faithful in sharing his word, he will bless it in the end. Samuel was given a difficult message. He delivered it faithfully, and God blessed his life. And then finishing up with verses 19 to 21. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up. He did not let any of Samuel's messages fail to come true. Then all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew Samuel was a true prophet of the Lord. And the Lord continued to show himself at Shiloh, and he showed himself to Samuel through his word. See, God has a purpose for your life. It may take some time for you to really understand what that purpose is, but you can know that God has called you to begin by becoming a Christian. Like the last chapter of the Bible says, let whoever is thirsty come and have the water of life as a free gift. So God has invited you to come to Christ to receive forgiveness, to receive transformation, to receive hope. And the invitation is extended and the response is now up to you. God isn't going to force you. He is waiting for you to come to him. 